0: This is writer and
1: game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live from ChupacabraCon in Austin. Or as I call it, Texas's Canada. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. How to write good. History. Movies. And of course, food. food. Spandex. That's the worst
0: shopping list I've ever heard.
1: I think you mean the
0: best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show.
1: Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school.
0: Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different, unstable element.
1: Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or... Write your name on the moon with Beef Jerky. Or Find Atlantis with Tongs. Beef Jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose.
0: Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure.
1: That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards, perfect for helping
0: you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all! That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university essay, we will
1: sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment.
0: Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin M-S-U. That's
0: atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it. Uh, so for the listeners to uh, paint you a picture... Uh, we are here live at lovely ChupacabraCon in Austin, Texas. And uh, Austin has been paralyzed, veritably brought to its knees by not actual yes. storm or ice by the or, By the threat of freezing drizzle. By the prospect of freezing. So uh, we have a, uh, a light turnout, but I'm sure they've all prepared 40 questions for us. Yes. Uh, if not, we have our Nerd Trope cards. We have our... Uh, Lightning round questions related from other listeners, and uh, let's see. Uh, fill some uh, blathering time here. So, as always on the live, I begin to randomly draw one card from the nerd pile. We draw another card from the trope pile, and Ken is going to connect you together in a spontaneous fulmination.
1: The nerd card is crusades. Crusades. And I have never met you, and you have never met me. Is that correct, sir? That is correct.
0: Oh, well, here we go. This will kill an hour. Kitchen Sink. Draw five more trope cards.
1: Five more trope cards. Okay. Wow. I did not know that there was an exceptions-based element to nerd trope. Okay. I'm very excited.
0: Uh, number one, Swords and Planets. Swords and Planets. Number two, English Civil War.
1: That's a nerd card, not a trope card.
0: Oh. Well, I, I think I'm, the other one may be in. Well, well, that's now. a trope, man. That's a trope. Well, they have co-mingled in my bag.
1: <laughs> that's... Ladies and gentlemen, the bag has commingled. Right. We must declare situation alpha. Yes. Please indeed. proceed to the nearest exit. There's,
0: there's <laughs> a rumor of freezing drizzle and commingling in the bag. Right. Okay, Greco-Roman Roman gods. God. Dinosaurs.
1: Dinosaurs.
0: Australian mythology.
1: Australian mythology. And right. finally,
0: mythos apocalypse.
1: Mythos apocalypse. Okay. Crusades, Cracker roman gods, swords and planets, dinosaurs, Australian mythology, and the Mythos Apocalypse. All right. We begin 75 million years ago in the great library city of Pnecotis, the city of the great race of Yith, the city that created, by dint of the incredible weight of psychic energy gathered in that spot, the Australian dream time, which the Australian Aboriginal shamans misinterpret as a record of the unchanging world, but it actually is, of course, is a record of the resting state, maybe the, um, uh, the dream state, if you will, of the great race of Yith, which stayed there and slumbered in its normal state for uh, uh, scores of millions of years. And then when they transposed themselves into the future, were, uh, their bodies were devoured by the flying polyps in a horrific uh, apocalypse, if you will, for the great race. That apocalypse will continue to replicate itself through the Earth because the great race's psychic impress on the world was so strong. That is why, ever since then, uh, cultures have risen and fallen. Uh, continents uh, risen and fallen. You have Mew, you have Atlantis, you have Hyperborea, you have all of the end state. They're they're, they're pulled there by the gravity of that first mythos apocalypse. Now, 75 million years ago, of course, was a time of dinosaurs, the mighty thunder lizards that dwelt in Australia as they dwelt all over our globe. Uh, The exact relationship between the great race of Yith and the dinosaurs is... Uh, Murky. It is fraught, obviously. The dinosaurs contain some large portion of serpent folk experimental DNA, almost certainly some large portion of elder thing experimental DNA, because everything in the world contained large portions of that DNA. And so, therefore, the dinosaurs, I would posit, were another library for the great race to use, a genetic library, a library of previous races on the world. And so, therefore, there are dinosaurs that contain the uh, DNA, Zothic DNA from, from Zoth, they're dinosaurs that contain mygo matter, uh, ultra-terrene matter from Yugoth, and other places. The dinosaurs act as another library, and that's why they were created. They were created by the, um, uh, by the Great Race of Yith as a sort of wandering repository of this information, which is why when the Great Race of Yith dies, so do the dinosaurs. They're no longer needed. They expire, the Great Race of Yith, are neat. They clean up after themselves. They're not like the elder things that leave shagots lying around to <laughs> bite people. They have a you know um, a, a, a dead man switch, if you will. So that is the, uh, the 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 substrate. That's what we're using as our background. So fast forward through several apocalypti until we get to the Greco-Roman era, and the Greco-Roman era, of course, has been uh, building its uh, ornate structure of logic into the world of primordial myth, the primordial myth of uh, Hesiod and the pre Hesiod sources. Hesiod, of course, was the Lynn Carter of Greek mythology, pulling together all of these other myths and attempting to put them into some sort of organic order. The organic order is an artificial construct, but like other artificial constructs, it draws strength unknowing from the original Great Race of myth, mental construct that they placed in the world that the shamanic dream time forces us to reiterate. And the gods, of course, of the Greco-Roman mythos, Asclepius, Dionysius, uh, the others, appear to mankind in what, of course, in dreams. That is how the gods speak to us. They speak to us through dreams, through this um, uh, this lattice, this matrix that has been placed here by the great race of Yith. So whatever they were intending to say, even if they have an independent existence as opposed to merely being psychic bleed-off of, of human evolution, they are being constrained through the language that the great race of Yith set up, the telepathic structures that they set up. There are only a limited uh, number of routes that they can offer, and they, the offers are pretty much all... Uh, do this until we all die, do this until we all die, do this until we all die. That is how the great race sets things up. However, the Greco-Roman gods are among the first of the gods of our current human civilization to be based also in this rationalizing impulse that Hesiod has attempted to put them all together and then Homer on top of Hesiod and then Euhemerus, um, uh, Pausanias, all of the rationalists who are trying to build a rational understanding of Greek myth. And they have a, a a set number of gods. They have only twelve. They've got the uh, the, the family trees. They're doing everything they possibly can to limit around these chaotic, horrifying entities that appear to you in your dreams and tell you things that will destroy the world. And they they, they try to build a, a rational structure around them, and so therefore they adapt. They, they they're pull. They're, remember, they're pulling strength from the great race of death, but they're also pulling a little bit, just a tiny bit, just a tiny scoosh from human desire not to die, from the, the Greek desire for rationality to build up. Now, remember, the desire for rationality is also a trap, because it leads to Neolathotep and yagsothoth and thought. but the great race of Yith doesn't know or doesn't care, because they saw it all coming, and they know it's all going to end in tears in the uh, in the empire of Sanchein anyway. But. In the interim, there is a brief moment where the rational faces, the rational masks of the gods recognize that there is only one possible way out of this apocalypse trap that the great race have set up. And that is to leave Earth and go to other planets and attempt to create on those other planets a series of possible myths that may have not been weighed down by the great race of Yith's dream time to find the dream worlds of other planets. And so the Greco-Roman gods appeal to the the lords of the various Greek states, and they say, take your finest warriors, your greatest uh, thaumaturges, your most brilliant constructors, your Daedaluses, your Nestors, your Odysseuses, your Achilleses, and go and conquer these other planets. If you will, we impel you religiously to go and conquer these other planets in a crusade. And this crusade sets down the model, of course, because it is, again, inside that great race of Yith model, it's the model for all the other crusades. The Trojan War is the fundamental uh, echo of it that exists in history, and then again in myth, but it keeps re-echoing and re-causing itself. And so whenever you see someone driving themselves for ill-understood religious purpose towards a, um, uh, a destiny to attempt to get yourself out of an apocalyptic box. It's not a coincidence, for example, that right after the year 1000 and the aborted millennium, that the, uh, the, the, the Pope Urban then has the vision that the, uh, Peter the Hermit has the vision, the, the various poor and uh, migrant and Neolothotep influenced have their visions of crusade as an attempt to break out of that apocalypse box in, in, in Europe. Similarly, the Greek gods have in, inspired the Greek heroes to launch these Crusades onto the other planets. And the other planets, of course, are conveniently named for the Greek gods, which is not a coincidence. It is a targeting mechanism. So Jupiter pulls you to, or Zeus pulls you to the star, the planetae, the wandering star Zeus, which is, of course, our Jupiter. Hermes takes you to Mercury. Uh, Aries takes you to Mars, et cetera, et cetera. And each of these is an attempt to create a mythical, empire, if you will, a, um, uh, a, a world in which there can be a true myth that is not an apocalyptic myth. And those are the goals of these uh, ancestral uh, uh, Greco-Roman crusades. And because they were put down to be powered by the, the great race of Yiths, a mental energy, they continue to have power now. And so every so often you have a particular sensitive psychic uh, such as John Carter of Virginia, who is obviously related to Randolph Carter, I mean if you look the last name is the same, who then translates himself through reverie, which is to say through dream, to Mars. And he is merely replicating the steps taken by the Greco-Roman heroes when they fought Troy, they uh, sailed for the Golden Fleece. They did whatever they did as an attempt to break out of the uh, the, the Yithian programming and go to Mars. John Carter also goes to a a, uh, a an oniric Mars, a dream Mars, and on that attempts to uh, save Mars from apocalypse. If you remember the. Uh, The atmosphere plant is being destroyed at the end of the first novel, and John Carter is nearly dead. And then he saves Mars, his initials JC, not a coincidence. Once more, that's another crusade, another attempt to break out of the apocalypse trap. And again, what does that create? It creates pilgrimages and then re-inspires more crusades. It's a feedback loop as long as you stay on the Earth. Uh, But the, uh, the Greek gods realized, don't stay on the Earth, go to the other planets. There are, of course a million stories that could be told of this, but I'm sure we've run out of time for this segment.
0: Uh, Indeed, yes. So uh, you've completed the famous five nerd trope card challenge, and it's time for a commercial message. A commercial message. This podcast is also brought to you by Destiny Quest Infinite.
1: You have no memory of your past.
0: Armed with nothing but your sword and a backpack, you enter a land of monsters, powerful forces, and shadowy
1: secrets. Prepare yourself for an adventure like no other. An interactive fantasy game book that mixes the divergent storytelling of choose-your-own-adventures with the actions of Dungeons Dragons-style RPGs.
0: Venture into the land of Destiny Quest Infinite, a game that's also a book.
1: Explore Michael Ward's game book, Legion of Shadow. It
0: burst with 600 pages of
1: fantasy story and 900 text entries. Hundreds of weapons, armor, and items to equip you against the battles and challenges before you. You choose where the story goes next. Uncover your past. Discover your destiny.
0: Check out the licensed computer version from Adventure Cow. It
1: features new illustrations. Ambient sound effects. A complete inventory system with 600 plus items to collect ingredients to gather to upgrade your equipment, an interactive combat system that automates fighting while remaining true to the book, dozens of quests to complete, 20 plus hours of adventure, check out the free demo, or purchase at dqinfinite.com.
0: Okay, so now's the point in the live episode when we open the floor to questions from our teeming multitude of... Audience members, uh, you will detect from the uproarious laughter on the soundtrack that uh, there are, what would you say, two, three hundred people? I would
1: say it could be as many as four hundred. I don't know what this hall is rated for, but we have certainly exceeded it. Uh, So
0: does does anyone have a a question to kick us off? Okay, so the question is, how would you cross-pollinate two upcoming uh, deliveries of Kickstarter products to wit Feng Shui 2, and Dracula Dossier. Uh, Well, of course, there are, first of all, there are vampires in the action movie universe of Shui. So I guess we want to figure out what archetypes the various uh, vampire hunters are. And this is not Stoker's no, these, these are the these are the so. new
1: characters from the the 21st century. Your Jason Bournes and such. So you'd use the spy, you'd use the spy archetype, right. for Jason Bourne, and I think the Magic Cop is an excellent choice as well. If there's a uh, uh, an assassin, I'm sure there must be an assassin.
0: Uh, there's the killer. You he's, can use the killer. He's the sweeper, so yes. he's the one who takes care of uh, all of uh, the uh, children of the night, mm-hmm. the lesser vampires, right? And, and they their, their human
1: Renfield goons, yep. yes. Um, let's see who else would, uh, be utile in this. I think if you wanted to sort of keep it stokery, it might be fun to have a woman who is, is talking to ghosts and stuff. Your sort of Mina or Lucy type. It might be fun to have, do you have a a Uh, character like that? Well, that'd be your contemporary sorcerer. Your contemporary sorcerer. Um, so, so that might be nice. And, uh, who's got a, a kukri knife? Uh, Everybody, anybody, anybody who wants. anybody it, wants yeah. a kukri knife. So there's not a special kukri knife. How about a, a how about a, a Doctor Seward, a mad scientist type? Do We got uh, one of those.
0: The closest we get now, we uh, I got rid of the techie mm-hmm. uh, because hardly anybody plays the techie, and I ported him over to the Full Metal
1: Nutball. Ah, but that Full Metal Nutball is a different kettle of fish, yes. as I know from a previous. Uh, feng Shui 2 game. Yes. yes. Which is not suitable for family viewing. Yes. We're not going to tell you about that game. No. Uh,
0: so no, we certainly are not. Um, you could be a supernatural creature. You could be uh, a. Uh, you could have been bitten by Dracula mm-hmm. and your goal is to uh, reach him, uh, uh, undo you, the curse undo the curse and uh, re- re- regain your him- that, humanity. That's, that's, that's very
1: that's very John Woo. Right? Well, that would be your melodramatic mm-hmm, hook, right? Okay. And I think that the other thing that you would do is you would watch the uh, fine if bananas absolutely bananas anime Helsing, which is exactly about crazy action kung fu nonsense magic vampire hunting silliness and does it and I think you would watch that and say, all right, given that this is the real world, mostly, not crazy anime future apocalypto world, what did we just see that we can pull down into that sensibility? Because if you try to run a subtle, gritty game of uh, spy and also spy with Feng Shui 2, you will weep tears of blood because the engine doesn't support that. The engine supports doing one crazier thing than the last thing you did, and the yep. first thing you did was probably pretty crazy. So I would say take your your tone from something like Helsing or from uh, some of the more uh, bananas. Uh, yeah, not necessarily Mr. Vampire, because the vampires are kind of wuss in that.
0: Uh, well, the, the, we remember the wussy vampires, mm-hmm. but there's actually a, the lead... Uh, vampire in, in Mr. Vampire is a super badass mm-hmm. uh, uh, and we remember the guys who sort of hop along but there's a there's a tough guy so you could certainly do a tough jing <sighs> right. and you can in, easily in feng shui rules create a boss uh, hopping vampire and he doesn't hop so much as run frantically at you and rip mm-hmm. you limb from limb right. so uh, the Uh, the hopping guys or the mooks or maybe the featured foes, but you can certainly carry...
1: And then I think the other thing that you would need to do with the, to to get your most utility out of the Dracula Dossier clues is to focus things away from the NPCs necessarily, because most of them are going to seem relatively low-powered and unimportant compared to your characters. You may want to build them either into direct hooks and direct melodramatic connections to those characters, or you may want to focus things on objects and locations, which can always be the source of a conflict or or a big brouhaha. I think the part where you are in Romania and worried about what the Securitate will do to you is maybe not, or not the Securitate, the SRI is going to do to you, is maybe not going to translate as well to feng shui, uh, and you're going to want to amp up the supernatural component earlier, necessarily. And then maybe look at, for, the, for Project Edom, for the British uh, guys who are, think that they're controlling Dracula, you might want to look at some of the, the, the more bad guy bad guys in Ghost of the Shell and some of the other anime where they're, um, they're, they're sort of cyber spies and techno spies and maybe fold a little of that into it. And then that explains why a standard Project Edom, a Duke of Edom, can be a featured foe and can be an impressive bad guy even though they're really just British spies and shouldn't be giving you any trouble.
0: Right, because anybody in the Feng Shui universe uh, kicks serious ass. Yeah, right. uh, You just upgrade everybody to this is the universe. Mm. And I guess you also look for cool locations Mm -hmm. in the Dracula dossier world where you can... Right. Obviously, Dracula's castle is a place where you uh, can run up and down the stairs and uh, walls and slip on the inexplicable armadillos. Mm -hmm. Um, What other sites would there
1: be? Um, I think that you can have a pretty good fight on the uh, on, on the HMS Proserpine, which is the oil rig in the North Sea where they uh, where the, uh, MI6 keeps its vampires uh, from breaking out and causing trouble on the grounds that they're basically surrounded by running water and can't get out. Um, and I think an oil rig is a great place to have a kung fu fight. I think that uh, you can certainly improv a pretty great fight in some of the other secret facilities but some of them are going to seem a little samey samey uh, i would also recommend some sort of uh, crouching tiger hidden dragon uh, tree fight because there's tons of trees in transylvania the the a quarter of the of, of romania is forest and most of that quarter is in transylvania it's actually it may be closer to a third of, of romania's forest and so you could have a really great i think uh, crouching tiger run across the trees type fight If you have it on Borgo Pass during a thunderstorm with the, and so you combine that gothic sensibility of nature hating you and use that to subvert the standard martial arts movie trope of nature loving you and you're working with nature is what makes you a better martial artist if you recreate it the way that Stoker does, where once you've crossed that invisible line into the border of Transylvania, no, nature hates you. Everything hates you, especially, and because nature is being controlled by Dracula. So you would, you would have, I think, some really great set piece fights in the wildness of Transylvania, and you use that Gothic to uh, detour the martial arts notion of harmony.
0: Uh, next question. Uh, so the question is, uh, would you pull a genre switch as a surprise on your player? For example, a space opera game that turns Cthulhu. And first of all, I have to say that uh, if players know that you're in the habit of switching genres, they know that the genre is Cthulhu. That's the thing everybody <laughs> yeah. adds uh, as a surprise. So uh, the thing to uh, first of all ask yourself is, will? how do you think they'll react? Do you think they'll go, oh, great, I was hoping this this source and sandal game would <laughs> yeah. turn into Cthulhu midway through yes. or are they going to go oh right of course it's the Migo here um, and, and so see how fresh they think they're going to find this and I think also investigate the question of how that affects them, who they're playing and who they thought they were playing and is that cool uh, and different groups have different standards for uh, how much they want to be torqued around some groups would really delight in being tricked and hosed especially if you've done it for the fourth time and uh, oh man, we, we should stop falling oh, yes. for this, but you did it so brilliantly this time. I oh, or, don't
1: know why we keep going in.
0: <laughs> right. Or you might have players who are more sort of, uh, oh man, I I really want. I was really invested in original plot line and I was hoping that uh, I would get to continue to being my Gladiator character. and Now, well, I, I don't feel like a Gladiator character anymore now that I'm in.
1: I think that a lot of it, like Robin says, comes down to knowing your players. Obviously, that's the- rule for anything, should I do this in a game, if your players either trust you enough and you've got a solid enough idea to make it fun, or your players have shown themselves willing to follow you wherever you lead them on the grounds that they've got nothing better to do on Tuesday, those are both legitimate reasons to do it. I think that something you need to do, though, is to present a situation where when you pull the switcheroo, they could have seen it coming at least provide some fairness. So the classic example, and I've seen this happen a lot, a lot more often than I would think, is people say, I'm going to run Knights Black Agents, but I'm not going to tell anyone that it's a vampire game. And I'm like, first of all, good for you for having a group of players who will just play a straight-up espionage game. That's awesome. (laughs) I love you. I wish I was playing with your players, because my players are jaded, horrible people. Yes, Um, we just want the trope. Leave out the nerd. Just take the nerd and put it away. We want to fight vampires. And then they come back and they say, you would not believe how creeped out everyone was when they shot that guy and he stood up and the blood was still pouring out of his mouth and then he ate someone, it was awesome. And I say, good for you, that's great. That's not really what the game is intended to do. It says vampire spite thriller right on the cover. And sure, there is supposed to be a cherry mission in which your characters learn that there are vampires, but the players are not supposed to be surprised. This is a role-playing moment where they say, how would my character react to the knowledge of vampires? What does that do to my character? What dimension does that add? But people do that with nice Black Agents, and I think that if you're playing that kind of game where it's going to be, no, we're playing uh, Batman in Arkham, and we're playing DC Universe superheroes, but secretly, it's going to be a vampire hunting game. And, and in, the, I mean, in some sense, the supers is never going to be a genre switch because it's like, oh, look, it's, he's crossed over yeah. that Doctor Strange storyline. Um, but in another sense, if they're playing the game and uh, it's going to always have been vampires or Cthulhu or, or whatever, leave some clues in the first part that they say, oh, that's why that guy had the trapezoid uh, shaped house. He was a worshiper of Nirlathotep. I see it all. Oh, we should have seen that coming. And if they feel like you've played fair with them, they will put up with more uh, uh, folderol than if they feel like you just pull it out of your butt because you got tired of the campaign. Uh, and it's like, ah, we're all sick of Vikings, right? It's like, I wasn't sick of Vikings. Well, too bad. Now we're Vikings in space. Like I didn't want to go to space. I hate science fiction games. Uh, because you don't understand physics, or whatever reason. So I think that if you leave clues ahead of time to what's going to happen, that's that's playing more fair with the players, and then they have a, a sense of not having been completely just swiped around.
0: And and I think Ken sort of touched on another point, which is always make sure the genre you switch to is one they like better than the one you start. And so, uh, you know, if they... Uh, actually really wish you would always run Cthulhu, they're gonna go, hey, yeah. you did me a solid, right. but if they hate superheroes and then all of a sudden they hate and have capes, it would be harder to manage. Uh, another question. Okay, so the question is, uh, how would you use uh, the French nobleman Gilles Ray who we have in our future list of uh, can and robin topics, and this might be the time... Or we uh, might just do a little teaser. A teaser,
1: a teaser. as it were. Uh, for the for the hundreds of people so, listening...
0: That's right how would you use him as a uh progenitor of a lineage of vampires right. in Knight's black page
1: okay uh, for the hundreds of people listening here in the audience and also in the vast podcast universe just a real brief 101 on Gilles de Ray uh, Gilles de Ray is uh, the historical Bluebeard despite the fact that he did not actually have a castle full of dead wives he had a castle full of dead everybody he uh, was a noble of France one of the probably the second or third ranking noble in France he ran a big chunk of Brittany And was the marshal of uh, France when Joan of Arc was fighting against the English. And he basically, between him and Joan of Arc, they drove out the hated British. And he went back to Brittany and then immediately turned to necromancy. And his practice of necromancy and black magic was uh, motivated by, uh, depending on who you read, a desire to get back all the money that he just blew uh, chasing out the hated British, a desire to um, uh, make himself even more powerful and, and, and basically overthrow Charles now that France was worth taking over, or a realization that God did not exist because Joan of Arc had just been burned at the stake as a witch and therefore why not be a necromancer? Those have all been postulated, but the bottom line is that when Gilles is arrested by the church and the, and the forces of, of the crown, uh, they find a whole lot of dead bodies in his castle and they have a, a very lengthy uh, a trial of Gilles and a torturing of, of Gilles to understand what was going on. And so therefore, you get a lot of people in the 60s and 70s saying, maybe he didn't murder all those people. Maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe they framed him by piling bodies in his basement. Yeah. And at some point, no, he was a mass murderer and that just happened. He was like the Jean Badel Bocassa of France, and or the Idi Amin of France. And so... How you turn him into a vampire is how do you not turn him into a vampire? (laughs) For God's sake, he's sitting there in a castle in uh, Brittany, which is full of ley lines and and stone circles and all the fairies and everything else. And he's got uh, a, a whole bunch of dead people in his basement that he's massacred in attempts to make demonic pacts with other people. And he has a strange Italian uh, 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 sidekick named Pilati who is a black magician who taught him a lot of magic and then mysteriously vanishes after turning state's evidence. So you even have the name of his vampiric master or his vampiric scion. Uh, He also, of course, could at any point have vampirized any number of his retainers. He could have vampirized um, uh, the first... A batch of church people who got sent in to deal with him or he could have if you want a particularly operatic vampire campaign have been a deliberate martyr summoned up all these demons put the demon of vampirism into him and then while he is being tortured by the church he lets the, 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 they, br- they draw the vampirism out of him into themselves, and so he acts as the typhoid Mary of vampirism that now spreads down through the Inquisition, the French Inquisition, uh, the, 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 the King's Royal Guards, and the Bishop of, I think it's Met, it's not Metz, it's uh, maybe it's Nantes. The, it's, what, it's the Bishop in the immediate area that basically said, I think we're about done with piling dead people up in your castle, no matter how rich and powerful you are. And uh, so if you make those guys sort of the infection vector, that his plan was actually to you know, basically be a suicide bomber and turn the aristocracy and clergy of France into vampires, I think that's another fun way to do it. But you can you can pretty much... Anything you want to happen as a result of Gilles Ray can happen as a result of Gilles Duray. And he dies not too terribly long. And I want to say it's almost exactly when... Dracula, Vlad Tepes, becomes Voivod of Wallachia. It's within like 10 years. They're almost contemporaries because the final victory over England happens in 1453. Orléans is 1429. Dracula takes uh, the throne in 1462. So somewhere in there, Gilles dies in either the 1440s or the 1450s. Vlad Tepes is alive then. So you can pretty much have a direct transmission of magical energy, or he has a bat fly out of nonce that bites Vlad when he's in Budapest. There's lots of different connections. I mean, any two European nobles, it's not as long a chain of connections as one might have wished uh, from a purely genetic (laughs) (laughs) health standpoint. But I think that's a that's a start, Robin. Do you have a Gilles de uh...
0: Well, my question then is, what is Gilles de doing in the contemporary? Is he the progenitor? Does he still exist, or what do the uh, what do the vampires that he uh, put in motion who who are around today? What are they up to? Uh, initiate a Gilles de theme campaign?
1: I think I think that what you do with the Gilles de is that you have. The notion that these vampires, whether he's a suicide bomber or not, whether he's just the first vampire or the suicide bomber theory, you have a system where the the current vampires or some faction of them thinks if we can wake Gilles Duray back up, if we can draw him back into the universe, we'll be all powerful because he will actually have gained the necromantic secrets now. Because he's been dead and he's been on the other side of the veil and he will come back and he will show us you know, the true name of Bounet or whatever it is that we need to to be superpowered. And so they have been working on a ritual to draw Gilles De Ray back. And that is why there has been the global explosion and serial killing. That is why all of these European governments and institutions have turned out to have nothing but nests of pedophiles in them. Because Gilles De Ray, of course, also engaged in that sort of activity while he was being a necromancer, because apparently that's what you do. It's the it's the benefits of being a an necromancer. And so he, uh, all of these are echoes of Gilles' presence coming to a head, and the uh, heroes, the the agents, discover that all of these serial killers are connected in some mysterious methodology, a supernatural methodology. There's some symbol that they've all got. Some aspect of vampirism has been present in their creation. And you can make it as... You know, you can go back to Jack the Ripper and say that the Golden Dawn were the first guys to wake up this vampire uh, spirit, or you can pull it just down to the seventies and say Charles Manson and the various, uh, you know, Son of Sam and the various other satanic killings in America in the seventies are the first wave of that. But wherever you start, there's going to be nothing but possibilities. And you can say that the the, the the you know the grotesque level of, of serial killing that's been happening in in Juarez, Mexico, and in Matamoros are sort of test beds to try and summon up Gilles there, and that they, you know, either failed or, or didn't do it right, or, or whatever, or was some part of their rod of seven parts that they need to get. And I think that you just keep pulling it through the kind of person that Gilles was, and in, in maybe even into Idi Amin and Jean-Bédel Bacasa, the notion of a a temporal leader, a secular leader who has fallen victim to this sort of serial killing madness, and maybe you start with uh, Charles Manson, or you start with uh, the, the Yorkshire Ripper, and then eventually you wind up in the charnel house that is, um, uh, you know, look look on the globe and find out where the genocides are happening now, and you put your guy there. So it's the president of the Gabon or wherever that's um, uh, engaging in whatever god awfulness or Central Asia.
0: So one of the things that Knights nice Black Agents uh, allows you to do as uh, GM is to determine what vampires are like in your world you picky and so a necromantic spawned vampirism uh, is one in which you uh, magic to uh, drain others uh, power and uh, originally it starts out being a power with a pack uh, with demons but at some point it flips over and it becomes uh, vampirism Mm -hmm. and so uh, your uh vampire doesn't necessarily their blood, but rather he has to kidnap his victims and perform a particular ritual in order to draw life energy, in order to become ambulatory and powerful again. Um,
1: I think that a lot of it would uh, would would depend on exactly where you're going with it. If you want it to be Uh, basically the question is how close do you want to keep it to 15th century demonology and how much do you want to try and make it a 21st century demonology that the reason that you have all the uh, devils are like dukes and that they teach you the art of rhetoric is because it's 16th century scaliasts doing necromancy but now that it's 21st century uh, bureaucrats doing necromancy they might have different demonic characteristics or do you want to just make the, the demon characteristics the fundamental part of it that is, um, because that's the flavor that you're going for to keep calling back to the the 16th century, or the 15th century rather, and its necromantic possibilities. I think you would have a, you would want to have a strong uh, sense, like like Gilles Duray had, of being able to project an odor of sanctity. So you'd have sort of the classic vampire mesmerism power would be a, a big part of it, and it would be a, sort of like Ted Bundy, you know, hey, I'm Ted Bundy, strange girl. Why don't you get into my VW bug? And she's like, that seems like a great idea. And you're, you're I don't know why that worked, but there you go. And so you have, your vampires are able to have that sort of uh, handsome stranger power or trusted government or church leader type power. And I think that would be a, a big part of it, that sort of two faces, and maybe you don't do it like Buffy where they suddenly their face shifts and they're... Although there's a bit in Dracula where Lucy Westerner actually does that. She gets a Buffy face, um, which I did not know until I read Dracula the ninth time. Um, but I, I can just picture a Stoker that. And, and then Spike came up
0: behind yeah, her,
1: yeah. his
0: eyes glowing with... Was, with with repressed was, love. Yeah, he was, he was doing <laughs> precognitive slash
1: Right, he was doing his own slash fic in his own book. Um, well, that's a different topic. <laughs> Bram Stoker's exciting subconscious life, but the um, uh, but 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 the, the the signs and the signifiers of your, of your vampirism, I think they should combine both what you were talking about the necromanticness, but also the I am a noble above suspicion uh, quality. So both of those should be part of it, and I think. The other bit of it is just, you know, what looks like serial killers? Can he, you know, use a thing to bind you? And so you've got ligature marks, but what those actually are astral cords that have been pulled out of uh, the, 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 the spirit sphere and used to tighten you up, or, or they're the sinews of demons that pull, pull you tight, things like that. So you would look at a bunch of um, crime scene reports from serial killings and what do those bodies have happen to them. That's what v- uh, necromantic serial killer vampires can do. So their abilities are, 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 are connected to that in some way.
0: Well, that raises a possibility of sort of a, a speaking of combining genres of uh, not a knight's black agents, but a knight's special victims unit mm-hmm. that you are starting as a police proceed as you investigate all of the serial killings, and from there you're drawn empires and you might then drop a layer of politics and tradecraft, keep it as the, the cop element that you can get from the blues, mm-hmm. but then they're, uh, instead of there being superpowers, the Gilles de
1: vampires. If there are going to be demons, I think that it is a cheat to say that the demons don't exist. I think that if you're playing something like Night's Black Agents, the existence of the supernatural or the paranatural or the unnatural is part of what you're buying in the prospect. And much like um, you can have one adventure in every 20 in Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu that it turns out, oh, no, it was just old man withers after (laughs) all. It wasn't deep ones. Um, but if every one of them is deep is old man withers and only one of them is deep ones then you right. I think feel a little bit of a cheat even if the adventures were really fun and the GM did a really good job so I would Not have land
0: developers again. Oh
1: man, that's why we've built a hologram to hide our submarine so that we could sell candy corn illegally. What um, the uh, I, So I think that the, the tropey part is is part of what you're buying when you're when you're selling that and as much fun as it might be to leave the question of do demons exist open as long as you possibly can so that players can play that very fruitful scully, you know, Mulder are you saying that necromantic demons are actually behind the Belgian pedophile ring? And he says, well, you know, and you can play your scully as long as you possibly can and maybe just even a little longer than possible because... The evidence that demons leave, you know, it it can decay, it lies. I mean, demons are creatures of lies, so the fingerprints that are on the scene are not always the fingerprints of the guy who left them, that kind of thing. So you can have a lot of fun with it, but I think that you as the GM should basically be acting as though demons are real, even if there's never an aha moment where the player characters turn the corner and there is Baphomet, you know, dripping blood down his mouth and, and then saying, I have returned with my good servant Gilbert. Right.
0: And that allows you to say do hey
1: to DeRay, everybody. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: and and that allows you to do the thing that you see supernatural do every one or two seasons, which is we need a new big bad. Mm-hmm. So you can have all sorts of rumors that demons exist. You can meet the vampires for the vampires can say, oh well, we killed the demons. Yeah. Uh, we took all their power, and that's why we get to do what they're doing. And something then, called
1: the French Revolution, maybe you've heard of it. Yes.
0: Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, the, the indications start coming out uh, of the vampires are showing up. Then, oh, wait, here's, here's demon clues. And then you can flip it, and the next chunk of episodes can be demons. And then you can start saying, well, what if the vampires go to war with each other? What do you do with that sort of tripartite conflict where it's mm-hmm. demons vampire player characters.
1: Right. Or you can add elves in because uh, uh, Brittany, uh, where Childe Ray was, is a huge repository of elf and fairy lore. And of course, there are people who will tell you with a straight face and imprint that Joan of Arc uh, saw elves and fairies, and that's who had her rid France the hated British, not uh, uh, St. Catherine. And so... I think that you can definitely go towards that uh, fairy side. You can go towards the witch side, because obviously you're modern-day witches. Many of them try to claim Joan of Arc as a witch for reasons that beggar the imagination. Um, and so you can could, you could have a number of different doors that open onto the various big bads that just pull off of uh, Gilles and Jean.
0: So, uh, is there another question here amid the uh, teeming throng? The tumult. So the question is, why is, isn't there more role-playing games in, about the uh, American Revolution? And it's uh, one of those great mysteries of the media, uh, along with why are uh, communists less uh, interesting pulp villains? Why they is didn't this... have
1: art students design their logo? <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> Uh, well, the, 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 the Soviets have some pretty funky-looking no, scary...
1: You don't have to argue with me, I'm right. just saying. Yes.
0: Um, but is is it merely art direction for right. the American Revolution? Now, I think there's something about powdered wigs. People just don't buy the way that uh, people looked in the 1700s. You can't make your hero big in a powdered, powdered wig. wig. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just one of those... It, it's, a, of course, a fascinating era of history, but uh, you're right, there's uh, comparatively, uh, there's a lot of other periods of history that have whole genres around, revolutionary war.
1: Well, there's the Patriot, which actually did pretty well. Oh,
0: right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And is much more pulpy.
1: And, uh, in fact, uh, the invention of genre spy fiction by James Fenimore Cooper was about a spy during the revolution uh, in the novel The Spy. James Fenimore Cooper then had to go lie down after having thought up that title. Um, I mean, right now we have Sleepy Hollow, which is uh, basically I think that if Sleepy Hollow continues to be a pretty good hit for Fox, you will see more people trying to climb onto that wagon because a lot of things, the reason it isn't done in Hollywood is because it hasn't been done in Hollywood. And once they start, they'll start. I don't know that we're going to see a whole... Uh, you know founder punk movement uh rise up as much fun as that might be
0: now have you been watching turn on i AMC? I watched
1: turn until it became apparent to me that none of them could write right that they had started the show six episodes too soon. That if they'd started that show six episodes in, I might still be watching it. But it was very dire. Its failure to take one led you to stop Mm, watching it. Right, exactly. And also, if you cannot sell me a spy (laughs) show about George (laughs) Washington's spy network, the fault is not with me, AMC Television. (laughs) Yes. The fault is with you. And also with the lugubrious Jamie Bell. But the, uh, in turn, is an example of someone trying it because they probably asked that same question that you asked. Why is this not a giant thing? Why can we not make this happen? And I suspect that at some point it's going to hit, I mean, Why the Last Man, for example, did a callback to the Culper Ring. Um, It's slowly filtering into the nerdosphere the way that Tesla did about 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that we're going to start seeing maybe a little bit more of it um, a lot of it is just that history education in America is so dire that people don't have a sense. I mean, they sort of know George Washington; they have a maybe a basic sense of Benjamin Franklin, but that's not enough to build a whole nerd trope on. I suspect. Uh, so
0: it's it's not uh, that you learn too much of this period in school, and it seems boring to you. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, you know unimaginably a fight for responsibility.
1: Ontario is actually. <laughs> You, you worked very hard to make your history dull, Robin. Don't, wanted, don't look at it, me. It, no, no. Yeah.
0: I, I've, I've, we're, we're very happy. We said, let's go be dull. That's, <laughs> well, yes.
1: That's, let's, peace let's, order and good government. Let's sit down and talk about this and yeah. see if there's any way we can sort of have less interesting stuff happen. And then someone like tries to be interesting and you hang him. It's like, you, sir. Yeah. yeah. Anyway,
0: we, we digress.
1: <laughs> you, sir, Louis Riel, are far too interesting. Yeah. You must be hung or sent to America. <laughs> <laughs> Preferably both. So the um, I think that it, a lot of it is is is, uh, is lack of imagination. Some of it is just changes in in cultural fads. There were uh, John he- uh, John uh, Ford made a movie uh, Drums Along the Mohawk. That's a really good that one. It was um, French French and Indian War, which is practically the same thing. Um, and then of course Michael Mann made the Last of the Mohicans, which was great, but was not really a, you know didn't set the world on fire in terms of French and Indian War drama. But there's a there's a mini series of, or a TV show about the Salem Village in which there are actually witches, which seems to me to be an awful thing to do. But <laughs> on the other hand, you know who doesn't love witches? So you're getting a little more colonial sensibility, maybe, uh, coming out of it, um, and a lot of it is just that there's so many more opportunities to do television shows and so many more opportunities to do things that at some point just osmosis will, will create them. But by and large. Powdered wigs is not a bad part of it. I think also the the the, the breeches, yeah, are a thing. Yeah, that, the whole outfit weird. and the aesthetic. Um, and, and it's it's very hard to sort of make that. And then another problem is that Washington, particularly, is such a—he's a difficult guy to get around. I mean. You know, With the best will in the world, Bor uh, um, Vidal wrote a bunch of histories, uh, historical novels, and he set out in his life to just destroy and micturate all over all of America's myths, and even he has to resort to other characters complaining about George Washington. He can't actually write a bad George Washington. So Washington really gets in your way, and it's hard to sort of work around him, and I think that uh, sleepy hollow sort of does it best by making him sort of this merlin king arthur figure yeah. that oh i worked with george washington that's why i'm awesome and lived 200 years and but to actually have george washington right there it's like writing for superman is easy compared to that you know it's like how do i make this how do i make this a thing how do i have you know the um uh, you know my character be cool in a world that already has george washington in it so i think that there's a lot of of interesting uh, uh structural uh, uh natures of it, but a lot of it is also that it was really a a pretty tiny war that didn 't wind up you know doing an awful lot of killing of people. It was a very low scale thing i mean it was pretty devastating when it happened but it 's not like the Civil War, which is just a freaking you know Homeric epic of six hundred thousand people dead that's a that 's a war or world war Two, and so it's it's a little harder i think for uh and also, you know, since 1896, 1900, we haven't been mad at the British, and it's really hard to make them the villains. I mean, they can play villains all day, but right. really saying, oh, we have to drive the hated British from our shores, it's not as good as we have to shoot Hitler in the face, right? I mean, Yeah,
0: and also the trousers, I think, you know, yeah. the introduction of trousers in the early 19th's mm-hmm. people seem more accessible. Well, you can
1: Byron, certainly, you know, yeah. yeah.
0: And those people seem more
1: contemporary, but yeah. crazy wigs. Yeah. James Monroe was the first president to wear trousers. There you go. So I mean, in uh, formally in public. I mean, I'm sure Thomas Jefferson wore trousers. Was a secret trousers because wearer. he was a hippie. Yes, he would answer the door of the White House in his bathrobe. Right.
0: Well, he he, he wore trousers, but he uh, cut all the miracles out of them. Right. Yes, he did. Uh, next question. Uh, so the question is, what's the next Hounds book? Ken.
1: Ken. Uh, there is uh, the book that I have wanted to do for Simon for some time and perhaps I will get to do it. I want to do Bloodhounds of Moscow where you are playing members of the, um, uh, the interior uh, ministry m- militia whose job is to police Moscow and you have uncovered as you investigate Moscow's uh, world of crime and black markets and awfulness uh, the Cthulhu mythos. But the trouble is the NKVD is always watching you and you don't know what of this awfulness is something Stalin has ordered to be done and what of this is something Neer has ordered to be done and how do I stop B while not getting myself purged for tr- looking like I'm trying to stop A so it would be a literal horror of isolation you are, you and your, your buddies are literally the only four people in the world you can trust you are in Moscow, there's a book Um, uh, that came out a couple of years ago called Moscow 1937 by a... I think he's a German historian. But the shtick of that book is that he begins with the Moscow Social Directory for 1936, which is the last year the Moscow Social Directory was published, because after 1936, no one was left in it. And so he just tells you what happened to all those people over the course of 1937, which turns out to be awful. And I think that between that book and the sort of overwhelming sense that we all have of Stalin's Russia as the worst place on earth, <laughs> except for the guy next door 10 years later. Um, you have a really strong possibility for some great isolation horror, and I think it would be a really strong thing. And then I could also, through the back end, slip in my uh, my 1930s spy stuff that I wanted to do for Simon, and he keeps rejecting. So I think we could also do a thing where you're, um, rather than in Moscow, you maybe you're off in the the west working for global communism, but also you don't want Azathoth to win, because that would short-circuit the inevitable triumph of the worker. Uh, next question. Well, I'll probably just take the bucket of money and lie and say it sold two copies. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot faster. I mean, I'm, I, and I don't want to, well, I do. Um, the question, by the way, is if the money fairy comes and leaves us a bucket of money to, to, to make a game that even though it will only sell two copies, we still get to make it, what game do we make? And I, at the risk of sounding immodest, suggest that anything Robin and I do is not going to only sell two copies, that our interest in that topic, because we're good at expressing our interest, is going to drive uh, sales in a way that other authors might not be able to accomplish.
0: I believe this is what we said to Simon as we pitched him surrealist Paris Dreamlands.
1: Exactly, yeah. And, and so if you're asking what sort of recondite nonsense do I think I could do... Uh, there's a big list. I think that uh, uh, Georgian England Hellfire Club uh, source book for uh, Trail would be pretty great. I think that there are a lot of sort of uh, side notes um, that would be interesting to explore. I am personally not really sure that my game of werewolf counterinsurgency would be a giant hit. Uh, Gegen Werwolf, which you play in a slightly alternate uh, occupied Nazi Germany in 1945-46 as the werewolf resistance movement is rising, and guess what? It has werewolves in it. And so the the game would be half counterinsurgency and half werewolf hunting. Um, And I think that that would be just operationally a weird space. It's not that people don't want to hunt werewolves through Nazi Germany. I mean, everyone wants to do that, but I think that the way that I want to do the game would be a way that would make people angry because they're like, counterinsurgency is hard. I just want to kill werewolves. And it's like, no, the point of this game is to teach you how hard counterinsurgency is as well as also hunt werewolves.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if anything really comes to... My, there are things that I think would be... I, I guess the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Dreamhounds add on where it's the resistance and the dreamlands of members of the Surrealist movement and art movement who are real members of the Brazilian things, but I don't think that. I think it's mostly because I'm more interested in that as an idea than actually executing. I, I don't have a lot of a long list. Of, I don't have a, a dream
1: project in my Yeah, I mean, the... There's the things that I have done that are unsellable because they steal other people's IP gratuitously. Um, I did a game... So if you could use that
0: bucket of money to to, to buy buy the rights.
1: Um, I did a game that was a game where the player characters were all immortal. And the game began in the 1860s with a, a Jules Verne Voyage Extraordinaire. And then in the 1870s, they did a Western. And in the 1880s, they did a melodrama in the 1890s they did a uh, scientific romance, and in the 1900s they did an Edisonat, and each episode was a different decade with a genre appropriate to that decade, and because I was doing that under the influence of Planetary, an influence that has never left me, uh, there were a lot of people who showed up in those adventures who are well, you know, owned by other people, and so I could not produce that game to the level that I would want to. First of all, the, you talk about the game that you know you have to package the designer with so it's playable. <laughs> this would be that game. Um, and second of all, uh, there's, there's a lot of IP rights that would have to be cleared for it to be fully satisfying in a way that I would want to do it. And that isn't ever going to happen. And I'm never going to care enough uh, to make that happen. And if I decide I want to do it, I'll probably have to wind up compromising and, and rethinking how to do the IP question.
0: See, the, the thing with the uh, Indian story game, uh, no matter how uh, recondite your idea, that's just more appealing to a certain slice of people that...
1: Yeah, the, um, I just did GURPS Horror Madness dossier, which was an expansion on something that I wrote in the back of GURPS Horror 3rd Edition, which was a William S. Burroughs influenced uh, game in which you are fighting the Sumerian monsters that are coming from the previous universe uh, to uh, flip the reality quake and restore the original history. And that is four kinds of recondite nonsense all pulled together. And I wrote it in a four-page thing on the grounds that, well, There's no way that anyone cares more than four pages about this, but let
0: me... It's basically nerd trope, the the role playing. Right, and
1: I use that as an example of how whack you can make a horror game. That was the whole point of putting it in there. And then over the intervening decade, lots and lots of people said... Why is there only four pages of this? It's because it's insane. No one would play it. That's why there's only four pages of it. It's a it's a it's a it's a worked example. It's not a real campaign. The real campaign was you know ten years after the War of the Worlds, fighting the Martians that hide in sewers. That's a campaign. But uh, but people really wanted it, and Steve Jackson Games came to me and said, "Why don't you write it?" And so I did, and it it didn't sell you know a thousand million copies, but it sold more than two, and that's because I wrote something that then nagged people for a decade uh, until they demanded it. And so, at some level, there's nothing that I can write, like Robin says, between the indie game and between having a reputation for, no, wait till you see what he does with this nonsense, it's going to be at least some degree a a success desteem. It may not be as solid as uh, Cthulhu in the 30s uh, with uh, uh, no rules for the uh, great old ones, which is you know uh, an easy bowl uh, but I don't think that I'm going to write anything that no one wants to play because the whole point of my art form is to write something people want to play uh,
0: any other questions from the teeming throng so the question is what are the underused or uh underattended aspects of the Cthulhu? that's a tough uh, things have really been uh, blind pretty thoroughly plush toys of loigor right yeah. there's even the plush toy industry has mined <laughs> the uh, Cthulhu uh, mythos uh, well, pretty thoroughly. I mean, Clark Ashton Smith, right? Other yeah. uh, writers who were in that orbit. I mean, and uh, that's something, we could sell more than two copies of a Clark Ashton Smith. Yes, we absolutely game, could sell. That, that would be a gas to do.
1: Yeah, it would be, well, it's one of the things that I keep suggesting to Simon, and he keeps, you know in time yeah yeah i've 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 actually pitched it twice i've pitched it as a trail of cthulhu book and i've pitched it as a 13th age book so at some point he will he will bend and let me do it Yes, and then we can both do it and it'll be awesome i think uh, robin is right clark ashton smith is underloved i think that uh not just his um uh, his hyperborea setting but also averoyne i think averoyne is really pregnant with possibility and i don't even think clark ashton smith used that enough that's his a uh, uh, province of France where bad things happen. And I think as we just learned from Ray, there is if you make historical France worse, you are really talking about a horror setting. I think that I am very fond of the of the elder god Quachil Utaus, the treader of the dust. He's in one Clark Ashton Smith story. And that story is a master class in making a story represent an entire much larger world. Because there are bits in that that are so evocative of, no, wait, I want to know how this shark-skin book wound up in Central Asia. I want to know more about Carnamigos. I, I want to know who that narrator is. I want to know how they met. And there's so much going on that, that's, that Smith puts into that one story. It's like
0: Vance in the way that he yeah. drops in just little details that mm-hmm. suggest a bigger world without stopping yeah. for 500 words of unnecessary exposition.
1: Right. And so I, I really like Lutas. of the Of all the Smith creations, I think he's, he's the one that no one has done anything with, really. I've done probably as much as everyone put together that isn't Smith in terms of just giving him a whole write-up in Trail of Cthulhu. Um, I'm also really, f- uh, I think, that in terms of not being exploited enough, I think that people are not exploiting Arthur Mocken's, uh hints that the, that the troglodyte, proto-picts, the, the, the elves, the, the twisted folk, are living in London and we just don't see them. That they are made themselves invisible by looking like beggars or looking like wounded children, so we automatically look away and have their own secret universe. And it's, it's like sort of the, you know, the borrower's only a million times worse, that there's these horrible little stunted things that live in London and we don't know it. I can't believe that that isn't, you know, just the most overused trope in the world, but it, it is not... People don't go to, back to that well, uh nearly enough, but but that's not really Cthulhu mythos. That's pre-mythos. The, and the, of the things that Lovecraft himself invented, I'm always really, really fond of the sort of the throwaway things, the things that he mentions on his way to something else, uh, the, the, the story fragments. You know, um, there's a bit in the, the short story asathoth which was apparently going to begin as a novel. And it's something like, um, uh, in a certain city in Yorkshire, there's a man who screams whenever the bells ring. And it's Lord Northam, and he, goes into the, and he went into the desert, and then he came back. And I want to know more about Lord Northam. I think that that is a great setup, and people sort of retconned it to be, that's the guy from the Nameless City. But it isn't necessarily the guy from the Nameless City. But the things that Lovecraft did that are one-offs uh, could be as ridiculously over elaborated as the things that he did, like Cthulhu and Nirlathotep, who, again, in you know, in a just world, there should be even more stuff about Cthulhu. As I say, in some sense, he's underestimated, uh, underexploited.
0: Uh, do we have another question? I'm, I'm glad you came with a fat notebook full of questions. Yes, <laughs> friend of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the the Benjamin Button D&D game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the the point is that he's a thing of a D&D game that starts at 20 and then you go down. Uh, continue. Uh, the players <laughs> hating it would um, be yes. one difficulty. Screaming
1: like children when their vorpal sword disappears. That's going to happen.
0: Okay, what's so, the, what's so, the
1: purpose of doing that? I mean, besides just sort of as a exercise. Why, why do you think that would be fun as a GM? Much less, why do you think a player would think that is fun? Is the question that I would want answered before I do that. And if the question is, I want to explore sort of the the, the the dying, right, the death of Robin Hood, the death of King Arthur, the death of Batman, all these sort of legendary, he was once great, but now he is dwindling and he has one last mission, one last possibility. And the question, I, I think you could get some pregnant thing where it's like, well, you were a 20th level wizard, but now, as all wizards must, you're going to dwindle and disappear and turn into a newt and be kept here in the newt farm. And you're like, but I have a lot of stuff to do. I got a lot of leftover, you know, things from all the exploring that I did. And it's like, well, you've got, you know, the traditional wizard's year. Go out and do it. But we can't give you any of our of our real thieves. You're going to have to go get the really old, broken-down thief from the thieves Guild who just got fired. And you're going to have to get this uh, mighty, you know, Beowulf-style guy whose potion of strength has just oh, look, it just wore off. Um, right, so he's, he's Tommy Lee Jones, mm-hmm. uh, Donald Sutherland is the wizard. And, right, and Clint Eastwood is the um, uh, paladin, and, yeah. Yeah, and you have to go stop that asteroid. But I, I think that that could be a fun space, but you really have to get player buy-in. I mean, you can't, uh, the, because so much of D&D, or F20 in general, is literally about power fantasy. That's the whole point of it, is you push the pedal, you get a pellet. You push the pedal, you get a pellet. You push the pedal, you get a pellet. And if you have a good GM and a good rule set, pushing the pedal is so much fun that the pellet is like extra. It's like a bonus. But you still want the damn pellet, right? No one would go in and sack a dungeon if you never got anything out of it. And so you really have to get a lot of buy-in from those players to say, no, I want to play the hero in the winter. I want to play the end of his life. And even in a in an Ars Magica game, if you're playing a Winter Covenant, every character is thinking, "I'm going to be the guy that's going to restore the spring," and you can't have that in the game that you're talking about wanting to play. I don't think.
0: Um, I, I think the way to, to do it is is that to call it dwindle, mm-hmm. and you start. And the thing is, you have to power down really quick, as players are not going to want to put up. But, uh, another way to do it is, you know, you're going backwards, uh, reoccupying the bodies of your earlier selves so that way you are you are diminishing in practical terms in the game but emotionally not losing your stuff you're just going back to a time when you had less stuff so that right. seems less and at the end once you get to first level you have to you know undo the terrible
1: thing that would uh set in motion the events you might even make it seven moments right so it's right. like three levels down each time because again uh that that long glide path i think is fraught with uh, a couple of possible problems, boredom being one, and then the other one being it could take too long and so you don't get the payoff. And so, you know, you, you're saying, we're going to play 20 straight sessions of the same thing on this high concept. That may be a little rough. I, yeah. you, you might want to pull it down to a rod of seven parts type deal. I mean, obviously it works best if you have a campaign that you've been building up for 20 years and you know everyone is going to go away to, to you know, college or, or uh, well, not for college, but they're going to be deployed to Syria. I don't know what's going to happen to them. They're leaving. It's not my fault. And, and so you're like, we only have this amount of time to finish out this campaign. What do you say to this possibility that we go back in time or we dwindle into the night and give our characters one last you know, great send-off. In, in my Call of Cthulhu campaign, obviously, when I ended it, it was really easy to, you know, find out what happened to the characters. I just, you know, rolled the dice on the table. <laughs> <laughs> they all died, but they died bravely. So it, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but I think that maybe letting an exterior uh, drive uh, drive that artistic creation will give them a little more chance of buying in. If it's like, no, this is the last hurrah of our characters, let's play a last hurrah adventure instead of yet another fight against yet more hill giants.
0: Uh, Well, we're coming uh, actually pretty close to the end of our appointed time, so I think it is time for
1: us to move to the outro. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games, Destiny Quest, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Don't be a slacker. Click the donate button at
0: Ken Robin talk about
1: Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or legendary live music venue by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.